Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. So when I, uh, we were finishing up the book of Luke last, uh, last study, and I thought, well, usually I like to go from uh, New Testament and go into the Old Testament and study a book there. But I thought, well, Hebrews would be great because then we'll be able to do a lot of Old Testament while we're doing the New Testament at the same time. So, man, this really is the case today as we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, some lots of, lots of content, okay? So last week we sought to grasp the meaning of the oath that God swore to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the three parts of that is the land and the seed and the blessing, right? You know, you, uh, God says you will have so many descendants, Abraham, you won't be able to count them all. You will have this piece of land right here, this piece of real estate as a inheritance for them forever. And through your line, through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So the audience here in Hebrews, they know all about this covenant God made with Abraham because it's a huge part of the Jewish heritage. We are God's chosen people. That's why he brought us out of slavery in Egypt and brought us to this promised land and why he has sustained us uh, for 1,900 years uh, of conquest and persecution, yet they were still in that land. And when there was 70 years of exile, where they were all completely taken to Babylon, God brought them back again to that land and gave them the means to rebuild their temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So their understanding of who they are as a people, their identity is very much tied in with this oath that we were studying last week. And while, yes, uh, here in Hebrews this is now like 65 AD when this was written. They are uh, still in the land, but they are an occupied people. The Romans are, are, are have dominion over them. Uh, in their mind, their Messiah hasn't showed up yet, or so they think. Their king of righteousness, their prince of peace, he's nowhere to be seen. So they, they did know and believe in the oath, but they still had not seen all of it come to reality. Land, seed, and blessing... Abraham had faith to believe in these promises of God. That sounds great, but how exactly are they going to play out? The author says in his discussion about the faith of Abraham, last week we talked about how we can be like him and take hold of that hope that is set before us. So just in, in review, chapter 6, uh, we finished up verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is the hope. He is the Messiah. He enters within the veil. And we talked about that last week. And we know that that is in the Old Testament system. That was the job of the high priest to bring the sacrifices into the Holy of Holies in, through the veil and to present those to God. And, and so it says that Jesus is going to do that. Yes, exactly. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus enters the veil, comes before God, he says, as a forerunner for us. Now, wait a second. A forerunner, a forerunner is someone who comes in advance to a place where the rest will follow. 
sort of like a, a, a scout, maybe an eagle scout, right? Or an ambassador. Jesus is a forerunner, what, what, what meaning that we all will eventually go within the veil too. We are all going in the presence of God. That's not possible in the law of Moses. Only the high priest could go within the veil. Nobody else got in. Yes, that is correct. But let's cheat and look at chapter 7, verse 19. Look at this verse. The author says, For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Oh, so Jesus is the hope. Matter of fact, he's a better hope. The hope of providing for us the opportunity to what? Draw near to God. Well, that was never the conditions or the promises made in the priesthood of Aaron. That's right. Jesus, we learned in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, is a high priest of our calling, but it's not our calling is, is different than the Old Testament calling of the law of Moses, not the Aaron priesthood. Jesus is a high priest of the order of who? Melchizedek's priesthood. And we learned about this in chapter 5, verse number 5. So Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he also said to him, you are my son. Today I begotten to you, just as he said in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then verse number 9, having made Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And Pastor Rob didn't do anything on that back in chapter 5, so you don't know what that means. You don't know what is that. What is the priesthood of Melchizedek, and how is it different from Aaron's? That's what we're going to get into today. Isn't that exciting? We're going to get right into that. So lots to think about here. But before we go into the deep end, let's make sure we know what we're going to try to grab a hold of. Like, let's just lay that out at the beginning. Have you ever played that game uh, at the swimming pool where somebody throws change into the deep end and then you're supposed to dive in and go find it at the bottom? Anybody ever? Everybody do that, right? So you're supposed to turn, turn your back and you're not supposed to watch and they throw the change in the water and then you're supposed to swim down there and, and swim around and find it. And, you know, you can kind of run out of air down there and drown. It's a great game. You know, lots of fun. And uh, you, you may not get it. But, you know, one of, one of uh, Pastor Rob's hacks, because he's always a cheater, so they say, uh, if, if you're uh, playing that game and they throw the change and you turn around and look real quick and you can see a ripple in the water... Oh, Amy's done that, right? Amy, Amy knows. Amy's a cheater like me. So you see the ripple and you're like, okay, I kind of know where the change is. So that's going to really, I don't have to swim the whole bottom. I can just kind of get to that place right there. And that's going to help. So you know what you're trying to grab. You're not trying to grab bugs or dead bugs or leaves. Uh, you're trying to find change and you kind of know where you need to go. So that really helps you be successful in getting down there and getting it. So it helps. So let me show you what we're trying to grab a hold of before we dive in, because I don't want you to run out of air this morning at the bottom of the metaphorical Hebrew 7 pool. I don't want to waste too much time grabbing a hold of the wrong stuff. Okay, so look at chapter 7, verse 7. Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Okay, so that's the point the author's going to make. 
Something in someone is lesser and someone is greater. Okay, see the ripples? That's, that's where the change went down. That's what we're going after. The lesser is better than the greater. Okay, we're going to jump in. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, chapter seven, verse number one. Four, this Melchizedek, talking about Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We'll, we'll do that story. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek literally means, in Hebrew, king of righteousness. And then also, king of Salem, which is king of priests, of peace. <clears throat> Salem is the Hebrew word for peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Observe how great this man was to Abraham, the patriarch. He gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Okay, cool. Observe how great this man is. Now, verse 4 is where the author is going, the greatness of Melchizedek. But as we swim down there through verses 1 through 3, I think these verses strongly suggest that Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 and Jesus in the New Testament are quite possibly one in the same. What? How, how, how is that possible? Well, it is absolutely theologically possible because we know Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the and was he in Genesis? Well, he had to be because John writes in John's gospel, in the beginning was the, the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made. That was made. And then who was he talking about? Well, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that is the Sunday school answer, Jesus, okay? That's who that is. We believe in a triune God, a three in one. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we hear God talking, he's not, he's not a schizophrenic in Genesis chapter one where God said, let us make man in our image. So who are you talking to, God? Well, that's the Trinity. They're dialoguing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's make man in our image. So according to scripture, Jesus always existed. But in the Old Testament, he wasn't called, his name wasn't called Jesus. Most of the time when we read the Old Testament authors and they say, and the Lord said, we always think that's who? God the Father, right? The Lord spoke to Noah. The Lord spoke to Adam. The Lord God spoke to Moses. But there are these instances when Someone physically shows up in the stories and they're not humans, but they're not called angels. Remember any of these? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown in the fiery furnace. Remember, they were the guys in captivity in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar got so angry at them because they wouldn't bow down to his, his golden statue. They threw them in the fiery furnace and they're in the fiery furnace and uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes, hey, didn't, didn't we throw three guys in the furnace? Like, yes, my liege. And he's like, well, why am I seeing four? And one of them looks like the son of God. 
So there are many of these instances where the story speaks of someone who is mysteriously not human, but definitely not identified as an angel. And so the theologians have coined a term, you might want to write this down, a theophany. What's a theophany? It is a appearance when God makes a physical appearance to people in the physical realm. So theophanies can be one of three forms. First of all, there could be a non-human form. Can you think of a, a non-human form of a theophany? God showed up in the burning bush. That's a non-human form. The God in the burning bush spoke to Moses. And then there's times when the, he will show up and it's called the, uh, the second type of theophany is the appearance as the angel of the Lord. This title, the angel of the Lord. Look at Judges chapter 13. This is a very, very interesting one. All kinds of great Sunday school stories today packed into this sermon. So Judges chapter 13, this is, um, the, uh, this is about Samson's mom and dad. When they, uh, when, they, when they didn't have a baby, they were uh, she, Manoah and his wife, and Manoah's wife was barren. There's a lot of barrenness in the Old Testament. And this angel comes. It's called the angel of the Lord. So that's chapter 13, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared and said, you, are, you have no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And therefore, be careful not to drink any wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. No razor will come upon his head, for the boy will be a Nazarite to God from his womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And that was Samson. Remember the, the great power of Samson? We can't do that story. It's an awesome story. We'll do it another time. Someday we're going to study Judges. Oh, man, that is a crazy book. Okay, so chapter 17, uh, here's the story. This is the point I'm getting to. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. I wonder if you remember a time in who was called wonderful. I'll show you in a minute. And uh, my name is wonderful. I lost my verse. Where was I? Oh yeah, verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain of offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. Hmm. He's offering it to, see, see the uppercase letters there? Lord, all capitalized, that means what? Yahweh, that's the formal name of God. He offered to the Lord and he performed the wonders while he offered it to the, to, on the rock to the Lord and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on and it came to pass when the flame went up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah and his wife again and Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die. Why? For we have seen God. So his name is God. And then he's, and they realize that's God. Now, the angel of the Lord is this term that sometimes is talking about a theophany. And then the third theophany is when God appears not like an angel, but more like a man. So Joshua chapter five, one more, one more example. Joshua chapter 5, and this is another really cool story. This is, uh, this is um, Joshua and the, the con conquering of the city of uh, Jericho. Remember? So they're going to, the, the, the walls of Jericho, you remember your veggie tales, right? Uh, and they got to knock the, the, the walls down. You don't know what I'm talking about. It's okay. 
It's fun. So uh, they, they have the walls of Jericho, and it's the night before they're going to do the big battle. And look at verse 13. This is so cool. Joshua 5, 13. Now it came about Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, um, what? A man, just a man standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord of hosts. And what is that term? Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. That's another name of God. Captain of the Lord of hosts. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. And he said, what has my Lord to say to this servant? And the captain of the Lord of hosts said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for this place where you're standing is holy. Joshua did that. Now, whenever the uh, angels would deliver a message, never was the place decreed that they were standing, it was holy ground. When was that the other time we saw that happen? Moses in the burning bush. That was when God was there as the ground holy. So one of the names given to God in the Old Testament is, is Lord of hosts. So this is possibly yet again another example of a theophany. Okay, so that's three examples. And also people wonder, is that who the person Melchizedek is? A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? So go to Genesis chapter 14. I told you we'll do that story. Genesis chapter 14. And um, we see here it says that Melchizedek, this is verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Lord Most High. 14 verse 19. He blessed and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of all. Melchizedek, we see, is some kind of king. Nothing indicates that he's any more when you read Genesis 14, but his name and title is noteworthy. These are titles that are likewise given to the Messiah. So king of Salem, king of peace. Has that title ever been given to the Messiah? Yes. We know this one, this is a Christmas story, right? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be, I told you I was going to get to that one. What? What's his name? Wonderful, just like that, just like that angel. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. He has that name. Uh, Lord our righteousness. Melchizedek means uh, king of righteousness. Is that title ever been given to Jesus? Again, the Messiah says in Jeremiah 23, and in his days, Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness. So he has that name too. And then even his title of king of peace, king of Salem, Jerusalem, is the Messiah the, the king of Jerusalem? Yes. Uh, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, because what? Your king, the king of Jerusalem, comes riding. And of course, we know that's our, uh, that's our, our big um, Easter, the one before. Can't remember it. Thank you. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Your king riding. Uh, he's just in having salvation, riding on a donkey. So the titles are the same. Also, the title of high priest. That title is given to Jesus because we see that in, 
in here in Hebrews chapter 6. So even though it doesn't say Melchizedek and Jesus are the same, they have the same names and they have the same titles. Also notice, what other action does he do in Genesis 14? What did he bring to Abraham? I'll give you a hint. We usually have it here. Bread and wine. Very specific action. This priest is handling bread and wine. And then Jesus, likewise, in the upper room, in the Passover, before his death, he gave out bread and wine, and he called himself, I am the true bread of life. I am the true vine. So those are observations we make in Genesis chapter 14 alone. Then there's really nothing more about Melchizedek in the Old Testament except for Psalms 110 that Hebrews keeps quoting, the Messiah is described as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, don't forget that verse because that's one of the most quoted Psalms in the rest of Scripture. It's important because it reveals that Melchizedek's priesthood is something that was prophesied about by King David. It's not something the author of Hebrews just fabricated. No, it's in the Jewish Scripture as a prophecy. So the author of Hebrews is going to show us why it's so important. But other than Genesis 14 and Psalms 110, nothing else is said about Melchizedek until we get to this passage here in the book of Hebrews. So the author really begins to expound on the significance of this Melchizedekian priesthood. Verse 2, he emphasizes his name. So back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. He really locks in on the names there, doesn't he? Abraham apportioned a tenth of his spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, Melchizedek is king of righteousness, and then king of Salem, which is king of peace. And like we noted, these same titles were given to Jesus, but then he gives us these other crazy details in verse 3. What do you say about Melchizedek? Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like the Son of God... He remains a priest perpetually. Oof, that verse has scholars in a tizzy. They don't know what to make of that. Does that mean there's simply no record of his genealogy, no record of his mom and dad? You know how the, the scriptures have a lot of genealogies with son of, son of, son of? None of that for Melchizedek. Does it mean there was no record that he died? Or... Doesn't mean he had no beginning and no end. Rather, he just always was, which is kind of what it says, don't you think? I mean, if you read it plainly, that's what it says. Made like the Son of God, Jesus, the only born Son, Alpha and Omega, eternal, no beginning, no end. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, when he said, when he looked at the furnace, there one there appears like the Son of God. And if Melchizedek was and still is, then he's a priest perpetually, which is exactly how Jesus is described in chapter 6, verse 20, that he is a high priest, how long? Forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the debate whether Melchizedek is or is not a theophany, that verse, verse 3, kind of tips the scales towards him being a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. If only the author would have just outright said, oh, by the way, Jesus and Melchizedek are one and the same. Then there wouldn't be any debate. But it doesn't say that. I think that implies it, but by no means is that an essential doctrine that we're going to write up in our 
in our Constitution. So, Daniel, feel free to disagree with me or agree with me, whatever you want to do with that. It's quite all right. After all, that's not the point the author's trying to make. We dove into the deep end of Hebrews chapter 7, but theophanies in pre-incarnational appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament, that's not what we're trying to grab hold of. The point the author's trying to make with this reference of Melchizedek is what? Verse 7, the lesser is blessed by the greater. That's where we're going, okay? So here's verse four. Observe how great this man, Melchizedek, was, whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. That means something. And those indeed, the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, had commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descendants from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collect a tenth from Abraham, and bless the one who had the promise. Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So let's get after that. Verse number four. The author wants us to observe how great Melchizedek was that Abraham would give him a tithe. So back in Genesis chapter 14, when we first re, uh, meet Melchizedek, what happened there? Do you remember? So we had four kings of Canaan. And uh, they say, we're going to get together and we're going to go beat up on the Sodom and Gomorrah and those five kings of the plain, those cities down there, because they're not paying their taxes. So I can't remember the guy's name. It's a very long name. And his guys, they all band together and they go down there and they just, ah, they beat on these five kings of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah being two of them. So they conquer them and they take captive and they take all their, all their treasures and stuff and they're, they're leaving. Now, why that is important to Abraham is because his nephew Lot had, where did he go? He moved down to Sodom and he was living in Sodom. So when these kings attacked, Lot got taken captive. So Abraham, you know, he's over here hanging out, not anywhere near that mess. And then he hears, you know, oh, wow, they got Lot. Come on, boys. So he gets his militia. Uh, Abraham's got like 318 armed guys, and they get all their, they get all their firepower together. Uh, some of you would be like that, right? Some of you got some firepower. I won't say any names here. But they get all their firepower together, and they go chasing after this army of kings, and they, they get to them in the middle of the night, and they craft a strategy where they surround them, and they whip up on them, and they dis destroy this army, and destroy these kings, and they take all the spoils, and they take all of the captives back. And so that's what happened. Abraham and his security team, they chase them down, do this recon mission at night, and they take all the spoils and all the captives back. Abraham just whipped a bunch of kings and saved these other kings. So he whipped four kings and saved five kings. There's a lot of kings in the story here in uh, Genesis chapter 14. And then Abraham, who is no king of himself, obviously he's stronger than all these kings, right? Because he saved these kings who got beat by these kings, and then he beat these kings. But then in verse 17, there's another king, the king of Salem. He shows up, and then immediately, conquering Abraham's like, oh, wow, I need, to, I need to respect this guy. I need to, here's a tithe. Here's a 10% of everything we have. Well, that's interesting. Why would he do that? Because he knows something that we don't. How great this king of Salem is, which is the author's point here in verse number four. Now, of course, the audience is used to tithing, 
right? The Jewish people, they know all about tithing. They've been tithing their whole lives to the temple and, and, and the tenth of well, their tithe that keeps up the temple and that keeps up the, the, the supporting of the Levites. The Levites was the tribe that was uh, given the responsibility of taking care of the temple and doing the worship services. And uh, also the high priest of Aaron, he was a Levite. Yeah, you knew that, right? Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. So the Levites were the religious, you know, the religious guys, keepers of the temple. They were never given land as inheritance. Their job was just to stay at church and, and take care of the religious ceremonies. So the uh, money that they gave would support all that. And, uh, you know, just so you know, the money that you give to God in your weekly tithes and offerings, some people We'll put it in the plate when we pass it, and some people will mail it in, and then other people will use the e-giving. Uh, they go online, use the e-giving. All that money that we say we give to the Lord, God does not come down and collect it. You know that, right? right? Mark Newkirk counts it all up, and, and he doesn't write a check, and God shows up in the financial office and says, thank you very much. Appreciate that, Mark. Right? It stays here, and what do we do with it? We have a bonfire, right? It, it pays for all of the ministries that the church uses it for. It pays for the nursery that takes care of the little ones. It, it pays for the, the programs that your kids, Awana and youth group. It, it pays for the counseling services that people need. It pays for the salaries of the people that are hired to lead the worship and organize all the details around here. And of course, it goes to the ministry of proclaiming the gospel uh, to the pastors as we teach and preach and proclaim the good news and not just here at Faith Bible Church, but we partner and we support local and global missionaries. All of this is called building the kingdom of God. And that's where the money, the tithe goes, just like it did in the Old Testament. The most important thing in the children of Israel's life was their relationship with their God. Their entire plans and schedules were all oriented around the practice of their faith, their Weekly Sabbaths, their meeting at the synagogues for teaching and worship, their seven annual feasts, their pilgrimages down to Jerusalem to celebrate these thieves, these feasts. This is what they had organized and oriented their lives around. And then even on their daily living, every day-to-day -day living, the laws they abided by, the values they upheld, how they raised their families, it all revolved around what was taught in the law of God. They personally had no individual copies of the law. They had no internet to surf, you know, and see if, I, hey, I can find a good teacher and, and stay home and live stream that into my house. No, they had to go to the temple. They had to go to the synagogue and be there in real time present to learn. And since all of that was so essential to their lives, they gave their ties as the support of that entire religious apparatus. And the same is true for us. Although we are not mandated by the Old Testament law to give a tenth of our income to God, nevertheless, that tends to be yeah, the rule of thumb that we will use to kind of know what God views as an appropriate amount. God gives us 100% of everything that we have. That's a gift from God, right? And he's very generous to bless us with so much. So we just give 10% back to his kingdom and his ministries. And we get to keep 90% for all the things that we need. That's the principle that many of us follow. But we here at Faith Bible Church, we do not enforce, we do not legislate that. Many people give 10%, some people give more, some people give less. Honestly, I have no clue what anyone gives because that information 
is not shared with me. It's not shared with the elders. It's not shared with Pastor Greg because our, our ministry uh, to you personally is not predicated on how much you give. We can't play favorites because we don't know what anyone gives. And I really, you know, we don't have any guarantee that anyone will give anything, which is a real nail biter this time of year when we're trying to prepare an annual budget. What if everyone stops giving? Well, then we just, we'll just have to fire Greg. I mean, we just, <laughs> we, sorry. We, so he's, he's panicking now. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do anything. Well, praise God, that never happens. Uh, just the opposite. We see every year increases in giving. What a blessing that is. What we are instructed in the New Testament is this principle here, 1 Corinthians, about this is how we're to give. Now I say to you, the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the one who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one must do just as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that always having all sufficiency and everything, you may have an abundance <coughs> for every good deed. <coughs> so on that note, I'd just like to say, <coughs> thank you, Faith Bible Church. Your generosity has made it possible for us to preach and teach and counsel and help people in their time of need, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to demonstrate the love of God to the little itty-bitty babies yet to be born, still waiting for some, and all the way up to our seniors. We're building a hospital in Africa. We're supporting a school in Haiti. We're planting churches in Europe. We're, we're training pastors in the Philippines, teaching Bible classes in the public schools in Australia, helping people out of abusive and destructive lifestyles. And above all else, we're seeing people come to faith in Jesus and receiving eternal life. So thank you for your support of all of this. We tied to God because his kingdom is greatest of all and we all want to invest in it. We want to store up, as Jesus says, storing up treasures in heaven and then we will know we will receive this huge reward if we sow bountifully, we reap bountifully. <clears throat> so Abraham, likewise, gives the tithe to Melchizedek because he knows Melchizedek can bless him. Now, probably the audience here in Hebrews chapter 7 hasn't thought of any of this before because Melchizedek is a, is a very obscure character. And at first glance, it, it seems a little weird that this guy we know so little about is receiving all this respect and homage from Abraham. Abraham's the guy who has the promised blessings of God, the oath of blessing on his life. And you think when you read Genesis, well, Abraham, he's the most important person because God's talking to him and, you know, God swore an oath to him. But according to Hebrews chapter 7, Abraham tithing to Melchizedek indicates that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, even though Abraham has conquered all these kings, has all these spoils of war. Melchizedek is greater and has the ability to bless Abraham. And Abraham knows this. And he wants this blessing from Melchizedek. Verse 7, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one received them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. I think that's another verse to strengthen my observation that Melchizedek is a theophany. We're going to leave that one alone now. Verse 9. And so to speak, though Abraham, even Levi, 
who received gifts paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of Abraham, his father, when Melchizedek met him. So this is an interesting detailed point here. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And since Levi, the tribe of Levi, which the high priest Aaron came through, Aaron's the first high priest. He's the son of Abraham. He was in the loins. When they say that, he's like in the, in the you know, the future seed of Abraham. He's in literally, literally physically, he's in the loins there somewhere in there. And then Abraham's paying a tithe to Melchizedek. That means that Melchizedek is also greater than Aaron. And therefore, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Aaron's priesthood. What? What? <laughs> I know we're getting really deep here. We're in the deep end swimming around trying to find the change. But do you follow the logic, the point, the logical point the author's trying to make? He wants us to grab hold of this. Father Abraham is without question. He's a great person. He's blessed by God. He is seen as the greatest in the entire nation of Israel because he's the father, right? Aaron is the first high priest, and he too is seen as great and since he's the original high priest and all others come through his line. But Aaron is not greater than Abraham because without Abraham, there'd be no Aaron. So the father's the greater, right? According to the actions of Genesis 14, the author says it's obvious that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And since Aaron and his priesthood is in Abraham's loins, that puts the Aaronic priesthood on the side of lesser than Melchizedek's priesthood. So when the psalmist says in Psalms 110, the Messiah is of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And when the author of Hebrews says Jesus the Messiah is in the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek, it means that Jesus' priesthood is greater or less than Aaron's priesthood. Greater. So the context, you remember, is the audience is contemplating leaving their faith in Jesus and returning to the Jewish religion, the priesthood of Aaron. Is that a good idea? No. Why? Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, which is greater. Verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? The author addresses the false narrative. The author is addressing what the audience is buying into. Aaron's priesthood is perfectly fine. It's an acceptable way to God. But Psalms 110 shoots a big gaping hole through that logic. If Aaron's priesthood is perfectly fine, why does the prophecies of David foretell of the Messiah coming as the high priest of the order of Melchizedek and not through Aaron's line? Well, the logical answer is Aaron's priesthood is not perfectly fine. A change is needed, and that's what the Messiah is bringing, the needed change. Verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change in the law also. So the change in the priesthood and a change in the law. Aaron's priesthood was decreed by the law of Moses. And it was instituted for a time. But it wasn't perfect. Why wasn't it perfect? Why wasn't it perfect? Were people freed from their sins in that system? No, why? Because they had to keep coming every year and killing another sheep, killing another sheep every year, more blood, 
always having to do that. The animals were sacrificed and the blood reminded the people, what? Death is owed and death is looming. Oh yeah, and on a personal note, Aaron's priesthood did nothing for us, right? Unless, like us, we're, I mean, I mean like people outside of the nation of Israel, we're not Jews, eh? Most of us, I don't think, we're not Jews. And uh, Gentiles, that's what we are, we weren't even allowed to step foot in the temple. We weren't even allowed in the building. There's like no shirts, no shoes, no Gentiles, right? You stay out. We were allowed on the sidewalk. We could get into the outer court. We could be out there on the sidewalk trying to listen through the door. That's as far as we got. Well, what hope is there for us in that system? Tough luck, you were born in the wrong nation. Well, there might be a slim chance you could migrate in like you know uh, Ruth did, you know, she got in. But apart from that, sucks to be us. But Melchizedek had offered Abraham bread and wine and then blessed Abraham. And what did he say again? I want you to take note of this. The blessing was, blessed be Abraham, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivers your enemies into your hand. Who's our enemies? Our enemies are sin and death. The wages of sin is death. Sin takes us to the grave and then dooms us for eternal damnation. But Jesus brings us bread his broken body. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus brings us the wine, and whenever we do communion, what do we say? Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant, the new oath in my blood, not sheep's blood, in my blood. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And who did Jesus die for? Who can come to Jesus? Jews? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the Jews. Nope. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever believes, shall not perish but have everlasting life. How many are glad that Jesus changed the law? Amen. Our enemies are sin and death. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The power of sin is the law. The law states, if you sin, you die. Jesus changed the law because he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You sin, you die, but now if you believe in me, you die, you rise again. And not just rise again, you're welcomed into the presence of God, no longer an enemy. You're a friend, a child of God, an heir to a heavenly home. Aaron couldn't give you that. That's why the change was needed. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law was made, the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So that was all just a very in-depth way of saying Jesus is better because through faith in him, we what? Draw near to God. 
We had to dive all the way into the deep end to get a hold of that change. Sometimes it's hard for folks to understand that a change is needed. We get so content in our lives. We get stuck in our ways. Hesitant, resistant, maybe even fight the idea. Resent the notion that I need to change. How do I convince you that you need a change? That you need Jesus? Tell you what is a very effective means of making people want to change. It's when they are forced to face the fact that they're weak and useless. And what, what illustrates that we're weak and useless? Pain. Pain proves that we are lesser and we are in need of someone greater. Most people don't want to admit their weaknesses and they will deny their neediness and they'll start telling you, well, I'll tell you about my strengths and my smarts and I'll tell you about my goodness and all the wonderful things I do until that great pain knuckles you down and great pain exposes your weakness, exposes your foolishness. It shows you your lesser broken states. Faith Bible Church, I think our, our proud, arrogant society is real close to experiencing some great pain. You know, we've been developing programs and staffing our ministries for this massive wave of broken people that are all over this place, all over our culture, and, and they're coming our way. You talk to Eliana, you talk to the weavers, they'll tell you that their requests for help is daily. They are daily getting asked by new people for help. The demands are endless, and people are waking up to the fact that I need help. It's just, it's just scratching the surface. I know many of you are praying for loved ones who are rejecting the fact that they need change. Well, I think there's a coming pain that's going to humble them, and that will be the path to lead them to salvation. Hebrews chapter 7. These people wanted to keep hold of their their temple and their traditions. But, you know, once Rome came in and tore that temple to the ground, there wasn't anything left to hang on to. Much of, these, much of the things that people are hanging on to in our day and age, it's going to be torn down. The money, all the, all the hope for the future, all the property and all that stuff. We said these are gods, aren't they? False gods. And when they have to face their weakness and their uselessness and their false beliefs, but Jesus is here, and he's offering a better, a greater hope. And you can take hold of him. You can take hold of him right now and grab hold of that hope. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we pray that someone today would say, Jesus, I want to take hold of you. I want to, I want to let go of the things that are lesser, the things that won't save, the things that are not worth hoping in. And I want to put my life and my, my, my all in all in your hands. Please forgive me. Please heal me. Please make me your child. You ask him. And that's, that's what we said earlier. The, 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 the gift is whosoever will call will be saved. And all you have to do with call is, is he's, he's here and he's listening. You just say, dear Jesus, please save me. Please help me. I need you. And he wants you, friend. He wants you. He wants you to trust in him. Lord, we pray that someone today would call out to you, believing in your greatness, believing in your plan. You are the Messiah. You are our risen king. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.